me, okay? Welcome, everybody. It seems to be very, very loud there, so I should move this back a bit. Welcome, welcome to this event, Dismantling Green Colonialism, Energy and Climate Justice in the Arab Region. Uh, this is an event in the Alice Middle East Centre. Um, my name is Michael Mason, I'm the Director of the Middle East Centre and also a Professor of Environmental Geography here at LSE. So I'm doubly pleased for this event to be happening because it kind of covers both my, my departmental interests and my regional Middle East Centre interests. Um, this event is going to be recorded and we will be taking pictures throughout. So if you don't want to be, your picture be taken, put your hand in your face, but I hope you're all uh, happy to have your photographs taken. Um, the book, which I'll mention shortly, Dismantling Green Colonialism, Energy and Climate Justice in the Arab Region. This is an event uh, launching this book. Um, copies of the book will be available after the event that you purchase at a very, very reasonable £10. I've just bought a copy myself, and I think another one's been sold, yeah? Yeah. So, so please, what we're doing is the event is timetable from 6 to uh, 45 7. Uh, Hamza and Katie, who I'll introduce in a minute, will be available for half an hour after the formal event is finished to, to, to meet and greet and hopefully sell a few more copies of the book. Yeah? Um, the, um, if I give you the, uh, I mean, I'm particularly um, interested in this, uh, very, very excited to be involved in this event. Those of you who are LSE students will know within LSE there's a lot of interest uh, and research and teaching around this idea of energy transition, sometimes called climate transition, which is this idea of moving away from a kind of fossil fuels dominated global political economy to something embracing supposedly clean energy, renewable energy, energy efficiency, and, and various sorts of a social economic uh, transformation. Um, this, I'm going to quote here from the book, this is the first collection of essays, actually this is a question of the book, you kind of say, is this to your knowledge, it's the first collection of essays to directly tackle the question of the energy transition in the Arab region using a justice lens and a just transition framework. If you do not know what a just transition framework is, you come to the right event. You're going to hear all about it. And to my knowledge as well, this is the first book on the energy transition in the Arab region using a, 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 a political economy perspective. Okay? And, and so, absolutely delighted to be here sharing this event. On to our speakers. Both our speakers are, are from an organisation called the Transnational Institute. Um, to my furthest left, firstly, is Hamza Hamushi. He's Programme Coordinator for North Africa at the Transnational Institute. He's a London-based Algerian researcher activist, commentator and a founding member of the Algeria Solidarity Campaign and Environmental Justice North Africa. He previously worked for War on Want, Global Justice Now and Platform London on issues of extractivism, resources, land and food sovereignty, as well as climate, environmental and trade justice. He's the author editor of two books, uh, The Struggle for Energy Democracy in the Maghreb and The Coming Revolution to North Africa, The Struggle for Climate Justice. Also contributed book chapters to Voices of Liberation, France Fanon, 2014, and the Palgrave Encyclopedia of Imperialism and Anti-Imperialism. To my immediate left, uh, his colleague, Katie Sandwell. Katie's a program coordinator at the Transnational Institute 
She holds a Master of Environmental Studies from York University, Canada, focusing on food sovereignty and local food movements, and has worked with and supported movements around the world. She coordinates and supports work at the Transnational Institute on a range of issues related to climate, environmental and agrarian justice, public alternatives, energy democracy, land and territories, fair trade medicinal plants, agroecology, and food sovereignty. Well, that's, that's impressive. <laughs> it's very wide ranging. Yeah? Well, um, <laughs> yes, very interrelated. So, this is the order of events. Um, our speakers will speak in turn for 20 25 minutes each, up to a maximum of 45 to 50 minutes. And then I will ask you to hold any questions until the speakers are finished. And then we go into a kind of questions and discussion session. And um, we're, we're uh, timetable now to go to quarter past seven. Originally it was seven o'clock, so you've got an extra 15 minutes, which will give us hopefully a good half an hour for questions and discussion. And then after the events finished formally, the opportunity to, to, to buy the book. Okay? Um, so, oh, before I, uh, um, yes, we should move on. Okay? I just I saw something I was supposed to mention the next event, Nadine, of course, mention it at the end of this event. Uh, you think I know that by now? <laughs> um, so, firstly, to you, Hamza. Welcome, welcome to LSE. Thanks a lot, Michael, for the introductions. Do you hear me well? Yes. Very good. Thanks, Michael, for the invite. Thanks for the Middle East Center. Thanks for Nadine for organizing this event. I'm really delighted to be here to introduce um, with my co-editor, Katie, the book, Dismantling Green Colonialism. So I'm going to um, give you a little flavor of the main argument um, around the book and its main ideas. But before I get into that, and I think it's important to say something, um, it's not possible to talk about colonialism, green or otherwise, dismantling a decolonization or environmental and climate justice in the Arab region and turn a blind eye to what's happening currently in Palestine, to the ongoing genocide, to the mass displacement, to the ethnic cleansing, to the brutal siege inflicted on Palestinians by an apartheid settler colonial state of Israel with the complicity and active support of Western powers from the US to the UK to the EU, Germany, and so forth. I think we need to raise and object to what is happening there, say no, demand an immediate ceasefire. And more of that, we should show an uncompromising, an active solidarity with Palestinians in their right for liberation and self-determination. So, because there is... <laughs> there is a lot of talk around decolonization it cannot happen just at the intellectual and discursive level. There are some decolonization struggles on the ground that we need to be supporting actively. So let's, let's come back to, to the book now. Um, usually I start the presentation by asking a question. Why do we talk about the energy transition? Why there is so much hype about that transition to renewable energies? I'm just asking the question for every one of you. Why, why are we talking about the energy transition? Anybody? I'm sure you know the answer. I'm sure you know. Because we can't carry on with the current system. Okay. Any other attempts? Come on, you know it. Yes. Okay. All right, go for it. What is it? 
Yeah, I mean, negative. same thing. I mean, like the entire ecosystems are collapsing um, with major consequences, well, both for the ecosystems, but especially for also for the humans. Yeah, exactly. Because we cannot go in the same way and maintain the status quo. There is an acute global ecological crisis and an escalating climate breakdown that we need, that we need to tackle. And that ecological crisis finds its manifestations clearly in the Arab region. Environmental destruction, the exhaustion of natural resources, loss of soil fertility, water poverty, as well as the accelerating impacts of clim the climate crisis from desertification, um, severe heat waves, wildfires, the rise of sea levels, and so forth. So the, the, the impacts, we are seeing them already in the, in the Arab region. And this ecological and climate crisis cannot be understood in a vacuum or separate from other forms of crisis. We have the food crisis, the energy crisis, the socioeconomic crisis, as well as the political crisis. For me, I don't think we can understand or apprehend the ecological crisis without grappling with the capitalist extractivist model of development that has been imposed on the region since colonial times by imperialism. So what do I mean by extractivism? Just briefly, extractivism is a mode of appropriation and accumulation that has been unleashed all over the world since the 15th century with the conquest of the Americas. And as you can imagine, that process has been shaped by violence, by exploitation, slavery, and plunder. And it is the same story in the Arab region. Um, the concept refers specifically to those activities which remove large quantities of natural resources that are not processed or processed to a certain degree, especially for exports to the global markets. And in that sense, extractivism is not limited to fossil fuels or minerals. It can also be present in agribusiness and intensive farming, forestry, fishing, and even tourism with its intensive water use. And throughout my field visits to site of extraction or extractivism, especially in the Maghreb region, Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco, alongside pollution, environmental destruction, the prevalence of disease, I saw what the dependency school called the development of underdevelopment or the development of maldevelopment, or what David Harvey describes as accumulation by dispossession. And I want you to remember this concept of accumulation by dispossession because I'm going to come back to it when I talk about the transition towards renewable energy. And it's easy to say that the wealth in natural resources it happens at the same time with underdevelopment, poverty, lack of employment, and, and so forth. And this is uh, the paradox of extractivism. It creates sacrifice zones, and this is another term that I want you to remember. Uh, sacrifice zones with sacrificial people, uh, where, where, their bodies, where, pe where their bodies, health, water, air, and resources are being sacrificed in order to maintain the accumulation of capital and profits. So in the midst of this um, ecological crisis uh, globally, uh, it is becoming 
certain, as, as you said, that we cannot go on any longer in the same way, that a transition to a more sustainable system is inevitable. But in that process, justice is not guaranteed. That, that's what the book focuses on, on the justice element and aspect of that transition or green transition towards renewable energy. But before I get, I get to the renewable energy, I wanted just to, to share a few thoughts about what the global leaders and our political representatives are doing about this ecological and climate crisis. So every year, we have, who heard about the COPs, the climate talks? Okay, good. So they are called Conference of Parties, uh, and basically the climate justice movement calls it Conference of Polluters, and I'll, I'll describe why. Um, for 30 years, uh, the political leaders with their advisors, media representatives, lobbyists of corporations, including the fossil fuel, meet in those climate conferences or COPs to discuss what they're gonna do about the climate crisis. But despite the urgency of dealing with that climate crisis, they allow, they still allow for CO2 emissions to escalate. The only year that we've seen the CO2 going down, guess when? Exactly. That's the only year that we saw CO2 emissions going down. But all the tendency in the, three, the 30 years, the three decades, is just, is just upward. So they, remain, they, they let the crisis escalate and get, and get even worse. And the region hosted five of those climate talks. Um, the most recent ones, the COP22 uh, uh, in Marrakesh, that, that was in 2016. And then last year was in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. COP27, and this year is going to be in Dubai in the Emirates. And I just wanted to tell you that the president, that uh, the presidency of the COP28 is this guy. Uh, he is the head of the Abu Dhabi Petroleum Company. It's like giving the arsonists the responsibility to put off the fire. So the, basically this shows the bankruptcy and the failing of that climate uh, that climate process. But the story, the, the, the bad news do not end there. Um, the whole COP process has been hijacked by corporate interests and the private sector who are promoting what they call solutions, but they are false solutions. Actually, they are not solutions at all because they want just to maintain their own profits by promoting this carbon trading, carbon markets, uh, nature-based solutions, um, net zero, I don't know, I'm sure you heard about net zero. All the companies, even Shell, BP, have a net zero strategy. Suddenly they become green. They greenwash themselves, even their names. Uh, BP, British Petroleum, even branded itself beyond petroleum. Total, the French company, changed its name to Total Energies to show that they are doing some, some renewable energy. So all of these solutions are just um, another aspect or maybe a green aspect of the same paradigm, paradigm of maintaining the profits to the corporate sector. Um, now let's move specifically to the energy transition. Um, so there is this, 
environmental um, narrative, which is colonial by origin. It originated um, in my home country, in Algeria, uh, in French colonial times, um, which is akin to what some people call environmental orientalism. So the Sahara there, or the desert, is described as a vast empty land, sparsely populated, there is nobody there. So it represents a kind of, of an opportunity and an El Dorado of renewable energies. So Europe can get its green, cheap energy, and, and it maintains the same patterns of in, energy-intensive consumption and production patterns. So, but this narrative is deceptive. Um, it, is, it, it is wrong because it ignores a few things. It ignores questions of property, who owns that land, who owns that water, who owns those resources, sovereignty, popular sovereignty, local community sovereignty over those lands and resources. And also it masks ongoing relations of dominations, what we call neocolonialism and the global hierarchies that allow for the plunder of resources, the grabbing of land and water, and the exclusion of local people, communities, and working people in deciding what these resources should go for, or even decide how the transition would be, would be conducted. And there are many examples. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through them quickly. I see that well, I don't have a lot of time. Um, so I'm going to just tell you a little bit some of the examples, a little flavor. And then if you like what I say, you can buy the book. Uh, everything is in there. So, but before I'll give you the examples, maybe I'll define a little bit what I mean by green colonialism and green grabbing. So green colonialism for me is the extension of the colonial relations of exploitation, plunder, dispossession, as well as the dehumanization of the other to what we call the green era or the era of renewable energy with the accompanying of externalizing the social and economic costs from the cores, like from the richest countries, to the peripheral countries and the peripheral communities. And we are creating in, in by this, um, like what, what, what we call green, green sacrifice zones. So basically we have the same system, but we are only changing the source of energy. So from fossil fuels, we are going to renewable energy, but we are maintaining the same capitalism, the same capitalist and imperialist system. And that global transition, that, yeah, something that you need to wear off, is happening unevenly. So mostly in the global north, uh, in countries like here, in the west, and some pockets in the global south. But that global transition is predicated on the continuation of the extractions of basic and rare earth min uh, minerals like cobalt, lithium, nickel, graphite, that are needed in, uh, to construct solar panels, wind turbines, electrical batteries. So the question, where would these resources come from? They would come from countries like the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where another genocide is taking place right now in there in order to control the resources. It would come from Bolivia, Chile, Indonesia, and other countries where extractivist dynamics would intensify and the exploitation of worker would, would increase. So this is something that 
you need you need to, um, to put in um, in your hands green grabbing basically is the appropriation of land and resources for supposedly green agenda so um, we have uh, the grabbing of um, indigenous communities land for conservation projects or um, confiscation of land in order to do some agrofuels instead of doing food production or the constructions of big solar plants and wind farms on agro-pastoralist communities' land without their proper consent and approval. Let's go to a few examples. So this company, so we're not just like accusing the West because those dynamics are taking place as well in the region. This is an Emirati company called Blue Carbon and has been acquiring uh, millions of hectares of land in five African countries. Zimbabwe, Zambia, Liberia, Kenya, and Tanzania. And you look at the surfaces, you'll be shocked. 10% of the area of Liberia is being acquired by this company, Emirati company. 20% of the area of Zimbabwe is acquired by this company. For what? For conservation projects in order to sell carbon offsets, what they call carbon credits, which are a euphemism for pollution permits allowing the big polluters like BP, Shell, and industrialized countries to continue their pollution while transfer, transferring the burden of that transition or of the environmental agenda to other countries. And I put this, this um, example, uh, this number there. The whole African continent is only responsible for around 4 to 5% of global CO2 emissions. So if that's not colonialism, green colonialism, I don't know what it is. So the, it's not the responsibility of Africa to do this kind of projects, but it's the responsibility of the biggest polluters and emitters of this world. The Warz solar plant. Who heard about the Warz solar plant? Okay, that's good. Yeah. So the Warz solar plant was launched in 2016, just before the climate talks um, in, in, uh, in Marrakesh. That was, yeah, I, I attended those actually outside. At the time, it was described as the biggest solar plant in the world. Um, but then when you start scratching under the surface, you'll find a really bleak picture. First of all, it is a green grab. The 3,000 hectares <coughs> of collective lands that has, have been confiscated from the pastoralists was done without proper uh, consent, without proper consultation. And this is, this is documented uh, because the community is still now, they are complaining about the projects and they are not benefiting from it. That's one. Second, it's a private venture. They say it's a public-private partnership, PPP which is another euphemism for the privatization of profits and the socialization of losses. And in fact, this project contracted a debt of $9 billion from the World Bank, African Development Banks, and other European banks with Moroccan guarantees. So if the project fails, it's the Moroccan citizens who would pay. It's not the company, the companies running this project. So the companies running the projects are Aqua Power, it's a Saudi company, and there is a Spanish consortium as well involved in, in, in running the project. The project is losing money, 80 million euros a year. Um, who pays? It's the, Moro the Moroccan citizens. In a country heavily indebted, that's not really, really acceptable. But even if we look 
at the green credentials of that project, we realize it's not green. It's using a technology called CSP, concentrated solar power, that necessitates an extensive usage of water to cool down the system and clean the panels. Um, and that water is diverted from local agriculture, from lo local drinking uh, activities in a semi-arid region. So even those credentials do not hold, the green credentials do not hold. Same story of decarbonization by dispossession. So you remember the accumulation by dispossession I told you about? So it is a decarbonization by dispossession, middle solar plant being built 450 kilometers to the north east of, of Warzazet, the pastoralists that have been interviewed, that's what they had to say about that project. The land in which we live has been occupied. So if th those examples that I showed you before can be described as green grabbing, what is happening in occupied lands in the Arab region, five minutes, okay, wow. Uh, in the Arab region um, can be described directly as green colonialism, like Western Sahara, Palestine, the Golan Heights. So Western Sahara is occupied um, by the Moroccan monarchy, and there are a lot of renewable projects there, from wind farms to solar plants, that are taking place despite, at the expense of the Sahrawis' right for self-determination. Same story in Palestine, but in much more brutal way. Um, Israel used the, uh, the colonial environmental narrative that I told you about, or the environmental orientalism, describing Palestine pre-1948 as an empty, parched land, um, which has become a blooming oasis since the establishment of the state of Israel. Basically, it is greenwashing its own colonialism and covers its war crimes against the Palestinian people, posing as a green and advanced country in a superior position to other neighboring uh, Middle Eastern countries. And there is a great chapter by, by Manal Shqair um, specifically on this with the eco-normalization projects taking place in the Arab region. For example, she documents two important initiatives, the prosperity uh, project between Israel and Jordan with um, the support of the Emirates and then some two, two Israeli companies called NUMED Energy and ENLT um, building the various projects in the region from Morocco to Oman to Saudi Arabia and Jordan. I really recommend reading the article. Um, the other tendency that we described in the book, I think there are around six or seven chapters, is the liberalization and privatization of renewable energy with the support of international financial institutions like the World Bank and other um, international neoliberal institutions. And there is a tendency to focus on the export element. So we want those countries to continue exporting those cheap natural resources to us. So there are articles from Egypt, uh, Sudan, Jordan, Morocco, and even Tunisia. And I'm putting this here just to highlight a project um, that I, I started looking at like six or seven years ago called TUNUR. The TUNUR project wanted to export electricity um, to Europe. And given that Tunisia depends on its neighboring country, Algeria, for its gas and energy, um, we, we wonder energy transition for whom? 
that energy uh, that does it work in in the benefits in the benefits of whom um, same story and I, I just wanted to to say something about this project called X-Links because the person who initiated that project is a British entrepreneur he's the ex uh, Tesco CEO um, with a partnership with the Sa Saudi Aqua Power they want also to build big solar plants and wind farms in southern Morocco in order to export green electricity through undersea cables, 3,800 kilometers, to, to the UK, to Devon. And I didn't believe in it at first. I said, no, this is just a hype, you are just talking. But then I saw it in the UK energy strategy. They mentioned it in 2021, the end of 2021. It was just one sentence saying, it is being considered. But then, this September, clearly the Financial Times revealed the story that the UK is seriously considering that project. So basically what I see in the same patterns of extractivism that I mentioned uh, earlier in terms of mining, agribusiness, and fossil fuels. Um, the Europe or industrialized countries want the Arab region or North African countries to continue to be the exporters of cheap natural resources, including renewable energies, while Europe, the EU, builds walls and fences and let people die in the Mediterranean. Hydrogen, same story. Um, I can go maybe in the discussion and tell you more about it, but it's the same story, the same story about land, the same story about grabbing water, the same story of diverting the agendas from the priorities, from the local priorities of the local people towards foreign, foreign agendas. Um, energy transition, energy expansion, let's forget about that. So the, the EU energy security, yeah, I will. Okay, I'll stop now. Uh, can I, can, can I? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this one is very important. So there are some chapters covering the Gulf in the book. Um, so because COP28 is taking place in Emirates, uh, those chapters are highlighting the importance of the Gulf countries as the core of contemporary fossil capitalism. Uh, the chapter by Adam Hania just sends a warning to the global <coughs> climate justice movement saying that you need to take the Middle East seriously. You need to take the Gulf seriously because they are a nodal point in the global fossil fuel regime and they are indisputable protagonists in any discussion around climate change and the phase out or the move away from fossil fuels. Um, the Saudi energy minister in the summer of 2021 said it clearly, we are still going to be the last man standing and every molecule of hydrocarbon will come out. And this story gets more complicated with the growing relationship between the Gulf, mainly Saudi Arabia, and China. So this was going to represent a huge challenge for the climate justice movement. And I'll finish here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much, everyone. It's lovely to see you all here, to have you with us. I have the kind of happy job of being in the position to introduce the more hopeful side of the story, at least sort of optimism of the will kind of hopeful. Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit about the concept of just transition and then about what that might look like in the Arab region and a little bit about what you all as aspiring activist scholars might, what, what your role in that might look like, I hope. Um, so 
have people in fact heard of the concept of just transition? Is this a kind of a new one or people? Okay, um, good, great. The first thing I want to make very clear about it, whether you've heard the term or, or not, is that it's important to know this is quite a contested term. At this moment, I would say the term just transition itself is a, a terrain of political struggle. People are using the term in many different ways, uh, some of them which I would completely endorse and be on board with, many of which I would not. So you can go on the website of Shell and look at their vision of a just transition, and it is not my vision of a just transition, uh, and I hope not yours. So what the kind of vision of, of a just transition that we at the Transnational Institute and that we, um, you know, Hamza and I together with the authors of this book are looking at uh, is a vision of just transition that's really about transforming the kind of power dynamics that Hamza has laid out in the first half of this. So not changing our energy sources or not only changing our energy sources, but transforming power, political power, decision-making power, economic power. I, and through that also our energy system, but much broader. Uh, so it's not a technical project. There's not going to be one technology that will do this for us. Technology is embedded in, in society, in our economies, in our social systems. And we need to fundamentally transform those through political action uh, in order to have any hope of doing the technical tasks we need to do. Uh, and as we mentioned briefly, the vision that we have is of one with working people at its center. And I want to maybe take a second to talk about the term working people, because it's one that we are using in a slightly particular way. We're drawing on the work of Walter Rodney, um, who developed this term as a kind of a shorthand for talking about the, the kind of alliances between people who are being dispossessed in a lot of different ways by capitalism, whether it's industrial working class people uh, or past, uh, migrant pastoralists who are having their land uh, taken from them. Both of those people, although they exist in very different kinds of, of livelihoods and have very different lifestyles, are being dispossessed by the same system. Uh, and this was also unpacked and theorized a little bit more by Issa Shivji, and we explore this a little in the introduction as well. But it's to say that um, we want to use an idea of, of working people, of the people who are the protagonists of a just transition, that goes far beyond the kind of industrial working class that were the originators of the concept in North America in the 70s and 80s, a relatively kind of privileged kind of, of labor, which came together with climate and environmental justice movements and started kind of building out. Um, but we really want to include people who are working in the informal economy. In North Africa, that's two thirds of everybody who's employed is employed in the informal economy. We want to include women who are doing unpaid work in the home, primarily women, um, and people who are yeah, doing subsistence agriculture, small-scale fishing, this kind of thing, and who are also not employed, uh, but still working under capitalism. So worth noting. So we've been engaged for quite some years as the Transnational Institute in working with global movements to try and formulate a vision of just transition, a radical just transition. And one of the things we did is in 2019, we held a workshop that brought together a number of different representatives from labor movements, from climate justice movements, uh, at that moment primarily in sub-Saharan Africa, um, in Latin America, and in Europe. And then since then, we have been building that vision out through projects like this book. Um, but in that initial meeting, we came up with six first principles of just transition. We don't consider this a definitive definition. It's not the end of the story. 
very much. This is something that's still being developed and designed by movements around the world. Uh, but I think this is quite a good starting point. And when we share it with movements, we hear the same back from them, that this is a solid place to start talking about what a just transition might look like. So the first point, and this speaks to that, is that just transition looks different in different places. There is no kind of one-size-fits-all uh, solution to a just transition. And the book, I think, shows that very clearly. Not only is the, the region of North Africa and the Middle East distinctive, and uh, it brings a lot of particular characteristics, each country within it has a lot of particular characteristics, which mean that what a transition needs to look like there will be dramatically different. Uh, it is, as I already alluded to a bit, a class issue. So we think always and, and everywhere, working people in their huge diversity and variety need to be the, the agents of change and the drivers of a just transition. It means that their, their needs need to be at the center, but also their ambitions and their proposals. It needs to be uh, yeah, genuinely led from there. It's also a gender issue. We haven't spoken much about that yet, so maybe I'll say briefly a, a little bit more about what we mean by that, because it's a couple of different levels of analysis are, are operating there. The first kind of you know, obvious level is a, a just transition should not make women worse off, should make them better off, right? It should take into account their, their needs um, and make sure not to deepen ex uh, existing kind of sexist exclusion. That I think is pretty uncontroversial. You won't find, <laughs> I hope, a lot of people disagreeing with that one. Though these days you never know. Um, but more than that, it needs to also recognize the protagonism of women. So we find when we work with communities around the world, um, where almost wherever we go, you find that women are playing a very active role in, in leading proposals for a just transition. And especially, um, yeah, in, in looking at ways of energy provisioning that serve their community in a different way. But then the kind of third step is perhaps a little bit more on the theoretical side, but um, it seems that one of the reasons that women play such a kind of vital and progressive role in energy systems and in transforming energy systems is because in general, globally, um, it's women who are tasked with the work of social reproduction in our society. So if you take a, a kind of a, a Marxist lens, Marxist feminist lens, you can understand the work that we do in our society is mostly either about making stuff to sell in markets, productive labor, or about maintaining ourselves, our communities, our bodies, our environments. Uh, and that latter kind of work is mostly assigned to women in most of the world. Um, so I think what, what a just transition that really takes a feminist lens looks like is one that thinks about how do we put social reproduction of ourselves, but also of our environments, of our territories, of the natural ecosystems we're embedded in, how do we put that back at the center of our society rather than production for profit? Um, just transition is also an anti-racist framework. That means confronting, as Hamza has said, the, the dynamics of colonialism and of imperialism. It's also about more than just the climate. We spoke a lot about climate as one of the urgent drivers of a just transition, but we also spoke about other elements of the environmental, social, and political crisis. So this is not just about reducing carbon emissions. It needs to also address the various other kinds of uh, environmental breakdown that we're confronting from loss of biodiversity to desertification and more. Um, and it's also therefore about more than just energy systems. So you'll find in the book, for example, a, a chapter on the transformation of food systems. 
So recognizing that, yeah, the energy system isn't something that operates in isolation from all the other areas of our society, and therefore the kind of transformations we're talking about has to be much bigger. Um, and then lastly, just transition is about democratization. It's about tackling these questions of power. So who, who makes decisions about our energy systems and about the rest of our society? Those were the six original ones. In the process of working, uh, working out this book, so we had, we had workshops with the authors, we discussed and workshopped all the chapters with them. In the process of working that out, it became very clear that in the context, especially of the MENA region, also in other contexts, but um, maybe especially there, that means that decolonization, anti-imperialism, and resisting occupation are fundamental, inextricable parts of a just transition. Uh, I think these are Hamza's pithy words. Green transitions must not become cover for neocolonial schemes of plunder and domination. Thumbs it up. So I want to talk very briefly. I'm, I want to leave time for questions, so I will try to, to be brief. Um, but about what we hope this book will bring into the conversation, why we felt it needed to be, be written, and what the work that we still see to be done, which I think is a considerable amount of work. This book fundamentally is about opening a discussion and opening questions. And there are questions that we hope will be picked up by you guys, um, by the next generations of activist scholars who are working with communities around the world to continue deepening, um, deepening this exploration. So I think Hamza made the point very clearly about how critical the MENA region is for a just transition and how complex the, the question of just transition is in the region. Uh, I would say despite that, we find that in global climate justice movements, voices from the region are still relatively lacking. So this book is, in one small way, an effort to help uh, correct that problem and to bring more voices and perspectives from the region into global conversations about climate justice and climate change. At the same time, as, uh, as I think Kamza also talked through pretty clearly, we find that in the conversations around climate um, and energy transition in the Arab region, the concept of just transition is not the dominant one, right? There's much more of a focus on technocratic, neoliberal solutions, and indeed, fundamentally, on driving an energy transition for Europe at the expense of the MENA region, all the dynamics we've been discussing. So this book hopes to introduce, as well, the concept of just transition more profoundly into the conversations going on within the region. For that reason, it also um, has appeared in Arabic and in French. Uh, yeah, so roughly hoping to counteract the dominance of neoliberal institutions to overcome both security, kind of um, yeah, climate securitization and technological development narratives to support the progressive voices uh, within the region uh, and the proposals coming from them and in so doing to help strengthen transnational alliances for a transition, a just transition that would be genuinely global and that represents people everywhere. And then for the purposes of, um, yeah, your, your own thinking as young scholars, I'll maybe say briefly a little bit about the framing and the tools that we use to do that. Because this book takes, as was mentioned at the beginning, a consciously politically, political economy perspective, but of political or uh, political economy or even political ecology in the service of justice. So this is in the tradition of activist scholarship. It does not 
pretend to be an entirely neutral um, evaluation. Rather, it is uh, rigorous academic research, but research that takes a side and that does not pretend that it could be ethical to not take a side. Um, we draw, throughout the book, the authors draw on the, um, the key questions of political economy. They were laid out by Henry Bernstein in the nice format of who owns what, who does what, who gets what, and what do they do with it. And we can add a fifth question of who decides. Uh, they're, they're solid questions for figuring out what happens wherever you find yourself. <laughs> um, and the, the authors of the book use often the tools of participatory action research, so working with, with and in and together with communities, developing research that is meaningful for, for activists on the ground and that serves their goals and their interests, and working to analyze concrete situations, to expose the strategies of, of corporate and elite actors who are undermining a just transition in the interests of feeding the strategies of social movements. Um, and through the, through the writing, through the research, aiming to strengthen alliances and solidarities. I would like to get a little bit more into the question of alternatives, but I think I might like to do it in the Q&A. So I will leave here a couple of the key questions about, from, from our side, about what it means to, to talk about alternatives, to talk more concretely what policies for a just transition should look like, could look like in the region. Uh, and I will turn to all of you for, uh, for questions and dialogue, if that's all right. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's some of the force across the, the, the concerns, interests, arguments of the book. So I'm sure it's, uh, it's going to elicit some questions. This is how we're going to do the questions and answers. We've got a good 20, 25 minutes uh, for questions. Um, I'll take two questions at a time from the floor. When you ask a question, it's a microphone that will come to you. So please wait for the microphone to come to you. It's so we pick it up in the, uh, the podcast which will be made available of the event after the event. Um, so I'll take two questions first. I can see two straight away here and then here. And the others I've noted, I'll come back to you. If you just say who you are quickly, please. Bring your question. Thank you, um, Thank you so much for the talk. That was really great. And it's um, very nice to have those, um, I guess, oasis in the university of kind of like resistance. Um, regarding those matters, because I think the new liberal logic is still very dominant. Um, and is that okay if I ask two questions? <laughs> um, thanks. I wanted to ask, but I guess I can find out for myself, if you deal at all with the concept of the plantation and the plantational scene um, in the book and in your like approach to environmental justice, or and, and I guess like of the realities um, that are happening now. And then I guess my second question would be, um, we were talking about this earlier, um, for, you know, the kind of like transition and I would say like revolution that is necessary for uh, the world to move forward in like a sustainable um, um, place, I guess. Do we, how do you see like the role of knowledge and knowledge produce and like producing more knowledge for this to happen um, because, or I guess personally, I, I'm a master's student. Yeah, I guess I didn't interest in myself. I'm a master's student in the Department of Government. Um, and 
what I'm uh, curious about is, do we actually need to produce more knowledge or do we already have like a good enough understanding of all the like destructive dynamics that are going on in order to make a change? Um, Um, thank you very much. My name is Rim Turkmeni. I'm from the Middle East Center. I have two questions. First, from all the projects you've seen, has there been any <clears throat> climate litigation case, uh, <clears throat> whether national or global litigation, uh, even if not successful, is anyone preparing, putting together a case for litigation? Because we know internationally there has been so many litigations all around the world. Many have been successful. So has there been any attempt? Second question, um, we know because of the situation in the Arab world, the issue of climate change is not really top priority for the ordinary citizens. I mean, we conducted a recent survey in Syria about the challenges people face every day and the environmental one, although they are real, actually they have impact on their everyday life, but they said they are very, very bottom of the list. So how would you create a a demand, uh, you know, to kind of build momentum for social movement that can drive um, just transition. Good. Thank you very much. We'll hold on for other questions. You have four questions there. <laughs> <laughs> to address, you can pick and choose. Which would like to? Go out there. Yeah. You got a, a lot of easy questions to start us off, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, the first one is at least a little bit simple. The concept of the plantation seed. We work with it a, a little bit in some of our in some of our other work in our agrarian justice and food sovereignty work. Um, I don't believe that it comes up in the book. Hamza, you can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but I think it's not on a frame being used there. But I think it, for sure it could be profitably used there. It's just a reflection of the different scholars involved in the research interests. But. Um, on the role of knowledge production more and more generally, I, I appreciate that kind of uh, existential questioning. <laughs> um, I think I would say not all not all forms of knowledge production are maybe equally equally needed at this moment, but I think there is still an urgent need for many kinds of, of knowledge production. Um, I think understanding and theorizing the systems of progression that people are, are living in and confronting remains important um, strategically, right? You, you struggle to fight what you don't understand. Um, so I think there is an important role, yeah, in, in knowledge production and then maybe even more so in um, developing that knowledge in ways that make sense to people in different particular contexts and in helping people to apply what can be quite abstract theoretical frameworks um, about yeah, development and capitalism, helping them to uh, really apply those and use them strategically to look for, for points of weakness in the struggles that they are, that they are dealing with. Um, Question three, I also have a very short answer because I'm not aware of a, of a climate litigation case from the Middle East, North Africa, but that speaks mostly to my own ignorance. So there, there may be one. And yeah, if Hamza is aware, <laughs> he will say. Um, and then lastly, in terms of the, the drive for just transition in, in the MENA region, yeah, it's a, it's a challenging question, but I'm also, I guess the, my conviction would be, yeah, as, as Hamza pointed out, the 
the African continent is responsible for less than 5% of climate emissions. So within the region, it's not the case that there's a need for an urgent movement to drive emissions reduction, right? What there is is a, a need for people to take back control of their own energy systems um, and to fight against being kind of violently reinserted into the subordinate position whereby they're propping up um, the you know, aggressive and exploitative capitalism of, of Europe and of the global north. And I think, um, understood in those terms, I think it is not so difficult for people to, um, you know, be, be motivated to, to engage in that struggle. So, and, yeah, as, as yeah, our, our analysis is that confronting that global injustice is a very necessary first step for any kind of deeper climate solution. Uh, so I think that in the kind of shorter term for the focus to be on that is is actually very coherent with what needs to happen. Um, I wanted to say something else, but I've now forgotten. <laughs> Sorry, I will, I will pass to Hamza, and if it comes back to me, I'll come back. Thank you, Hamza. How much time do you have? 25 minutes? <laughs> Five. Okay. Okay, so I'll, I'll start from the last question. Um, climate change being not a priority. So I've been, I've been doing a lot of work around environmental and climate justice issues for the last seven to eight years, mainly in North Africa, but then more increasingly in, in the Arab region. I think the main problem is about how do we frame the question? Because the dominant mainstream liberal framing of climate change or ecological crisis or the environment is uh, this middle class matter, it's about, you know, plastic bags, it's about cleaning the environment and planting trees. But the moment you politicize the question and link it to social economic justice questions, to sovereignty questions, popular sovereignty of communities and working people over their land and resources, then it becomes a different question. Because from, from my research, the environmental element is always there in the, in the struggles that I've seen. But it's not separate from demands of jobs, from demand of local development, from, a, from demands of dignity and a better livelihood. So if we take a political ecology lens, we need to connect the climate and environmental question with question of socioeconomic justice, with emancipation, with liberation, and questions of sovereignty. If you do that, people will connect. Um, so like 10 or 15 years ago, um, when, I, when I started using um, the concept of climate justice in Arabic, it didn't mean anything then. People found it really weird. I was talking like to, to environmental defenders human rights defenders say, I don't know, what, what do you mean? Um, it doesn't make sense. But now increasingly, with the youth are using it, uh, they are adapting it. But what we find is that still, the liberal interpretations of those questions, or the, inter the interpretations of the questions dominated by international financial institutions, international development agencies, like the German GIZ, USAID, the French Corporation, they organize events, they publish reports in various languages, but they promote a certain depoliticized or apolitical vision of the environment and climate change. They don't talk about the historical responsibility of the industrialized West, as Katie was, was talking about. They don't talk about the crimes 
of um, big companies like BP and Shell. They don't talk about climate debts and climate reparations. So in, the, in, the, in that way, climate change and the ecological question is becoming increasingly important because people are seeing the impacts. So if the environmental and climate justice movement in the region does not integrate those questions with political emancipation, with social economic justice, um, people won't connect. So in terms of climate litigation, I'm not aware of any cases out there. But what I know is some of the environmental movements that are, especially around mining, that I looked at in Tunisia and Morocco, are considering those tactics. Uh, I think they remain tactics. Myself, I, I don't believe that they're going to resolve the whole issues, but I think it's important to engage in there, to exercise pressure on companies, and get, and get some form of compensation. But I don't think we should just stop there, because it, for me, in the long term, it's about transforming the whole economical development model, because it is based on extraction. Uh, not just extraction, but extraction for export. And you export cheap natural resources, and then you create sacrifice zones in, in your own country. Um, the role of knowledge, um, just, just to emphasize something, I, I talked about the IFIs and those international development agencies, they produce knowledge as well. But it's a knowledge to serve a certain agenda. Knowledge is not neutral. So uh, for us, we take the side of the wretched of the earth, of the oppressed, the marginalized, and our knowledge should be in the service of those communities. We produce knowledge in order to change the world for the better, not just to produce you know, scientific or academic papers or books. That's the, that book is to deepen the conversation in order to find solutions to what is happening, a radical solutions. It's not just like brushing over the surface, you know, stuff here. Good, thank you. Two questions here. If you wait for the microphone, please. First, yeah. Okay. Um, hi, my name is Anjali. Um, I'm a land rights and cultural activist from India. I'm doing a course in the geography and environment department here. Um, I just want, I have a question, but before that I just wanted to say like, um, thank you, not in an academic sort of way at all, but like, I think this is the first talk, any environmental talk that we've had in this space that has um, recognized the realities of so many people <laughs> and um, including my class conversations, which I think um, very often uphold the same power. And anytime you bring up anything, it's dismissed as these experiences being impractical or the knowledge that you hold being impractical. Um, and I think when we talk about something like transition, um, with the kind of impact that it sounds so scary, like... No, 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 you're doing well. Yeah. Very good question. Yeah, go ahead. I think, like, um, people don't realize how much it affects um, a lot of the world. Um, and it like is constantly erased from the conversation. Um, so I think, of course, if you have anything to say on that, but I think more than that, um, I think my question was that even in, I mean, in a lot of these spaces, and I think we face this uh, in India, for example, when I'm speaking about this, um, I'm researching something very similar in the state of Rajasthan, which is a desert in India. And so we're seeing huge solar parks come up in Rajasthan, and there's already mining, and they found lithium there as well now. Um, and it's the same in Kashmir, where they found lithium in Kashmir is under, 
uh, lithium. And in Kashmir, it's the same thing where it's occupied by the Indian government. It's a genocide going on there as well, and we see the same thing with lithium. Um, but I think when people respond um, by saying, well, then how do we get these companies to shift or how do we get these governments to shift? I'm not even looking at the West. I'm saying even within our countries. Um, I don't know what else to respond with because people say that, well, there is no practical way besides carbon credits or besides these kind of policy tools. And I think the problem is that the knowledge that all of us hold and that we're working with hasn't ever needed to be translated into policy. And so it doesn't exist as policy yet. But how do we do that? And um, so that it's, I don't know if we even need to make it palatable, but maybe we do for the people who hold the power. So if you have any thoughts on that, but thank you so much. And just below you, oh. Hi, I'm Gleda Lan from the Environment and Society Center at, at Chatham House. Um, so I guess first I just wanted to play devil's advocate a bit because, uh, you know, as, as someone who works with some of those elites who you've mentioned, uh, the, the MDBs and the, and the governments, um, and, and ask you, you know, are you, are you, are, you know, is your overall argument for a complete overhaul of the system, which is very difficult to achieve? Or do you think that incremental change can take place, um, you know, through the strengthening of civil society, through the strengthening of some of the um, uh, governance practices? And I guess leading on from that, I, I thought it was interesting that you put democracy um, in there as, as, as part of the definition or, or you know, one of the important elements of just transition because some countries look like a democracy. They have the superficial characteristics of democracy um, and yet there are, uh, um, uh, the, the reality of it means that it's uh, very, very skewed in favor of, of certain groups, certain elites. Um, I raised the, the example of Iraq, for example, where um, they might have elections, for instance, but uh, it's, it's extremely hard as an environmental organization to work in that country. Y you know, uh, you are in danger because of calling out the kind of things you are talking about. Because once you start talking about the environment and criticizing, say, um, pollution, flaring, uh, water, water, uh, water rights, it, it usually comes up against mismanagement and corruption. It's not actually a climate issue. It's a, it's a governance issue. So just wanted to flag that and get your thoughts. But there's so many things to say. I thought you, you know, your presentation was really, really fascinating. I'm looking forward to reading the book. Oh, and just litigation. Sorry, I just wanted to add, there was a case that I heard of in Egypt against a coal-fired power plant. Um, it was a, a popular um, movement uh, against building a coal-fired power plant. I don't know much about it, but it was interesting that Greenpeace were involved in helping. Um, one of the problems they came up against was that the uh, judge, the courts, wanted to see um, the evidence and they wanted to see the arguments around climate change and nothing was in Arabic um, uh, around, you know. So, so that might have changed now, but at that time that was a real problem. Interesting. Thank you. So, Excellent questions. Thank you. Yeah. Um, do we still have time? Yeah. Yeah? We do. Okay. Being impractical or being a dreamer. The moment, the moment we start criticizing the system and saying it needs to be radically transformed, 
we always get accused of being naive, uh, not practical, um, and maybe you should get a job. That's not, that's, not, that's not what you should be arguing for. But I would say just one thing. Clearly, the ecological and climate crisis cannot be resolved under capitalism. And this is a fact. 30 years we are talking about the climate crisis, they haven't resolved it. See, because why? It is wedded to green capitalist dynamics. They want to benefit from the crisis. The capitalist class that is ruling all over the world wants to benefit from the climate crisis and maintain its own interest. And then when the real destructions would come, they would protect themselves in bunkers or maybe go to Mars. That's, that's, that's what they are planning. Um, so I think it always starts with an analysis of the reality. You analyze the reality, not just for to analyze it, for the sake of analyzing it. You analyze in order to change that reality for the best. Um, the moment you do that, your position needs to be with the oppressed, the wretched, and the marginalized of this world, which happen to be the majority. A lot of our people in the South are facing those colonial, neo-colonial dynamics, or what, what some people call accumulation by dispossession. So it's not an easy story. We're not going to change the system overnight. So that's why it starts with the correct analysis. And then you need to have a strategy. Strategy for the short term, strategy for the medium term, strategy for the long term. Strategy for the long term, for me at least, is to go beyond capitalism. Capitalism creates destruction and death. It's clear. We're seeing it. Millions of people are dying. The wars, the famine, the impoverishment, the add to an ecological and climate crisis. So the long-term vision is go beyond capitalism. You can call it whatever you want. Eco-socialism, I call it eco-socialism, and we need a just transition to that. That's why we call it a transition. And the transition is going to take a lot of time, involves coalition and alliance building, Bring in the various working people, fractions all over the world, building transnational solidarity in order to create power. Why do we create power? In order to con not convince, pressure the decision makers, either to take or we take power. That's, that, that's what should happen. And here the question of democracy. That word is just bastardized and hijacked. We should talk about democratization. Democratization is an ongoing process. Do you call this UK a democracy? I don't think it is a democracy. It's a liberal bourgeois democracy where ruling classes do whatever they want. They work for the corporate and the capitalist sector, and they don't give about the poor people in here. We are seeing it through the austerity measures. If this is, you may call it political democracy, there are elections. But in reality, there is no economic democracy. There is a class that benefits and exploits the others at the national, regional, and global level. So, because there is that tendency when we look at the Arab regions and other parts, when, when we mention those projects there, say people, why, why, why is that happening there? So the easiest and simplistic explanation is mismanagement, corruption, there is no democracy there. It's true. All those elements are correct. But it's not just that. It is about the neo-colonial relations of dominations. Those countries are trapped in a global capitalist system 
where they are forced with the complicity of the local elites, of course. So we're not accusing just, you know, foreign elites and foreign companies. The local elites are complicit in the legalized plunder of resources and the exploitation of their own people. So, um, and this is, this is important to put here. Uh, it's not just about Sisi in Egypt. Who supports him? The West. They support a military dictatorship. And, and they roll the red carpet. They tell you Israel is a democracy in the, in the Middle East, and they are committing a genocide. That's, that's, that's not, we need to democratize everywhere, and that needs to take into account the global hierarchies that are enforced by imperialist and colonial tools, debt. Those countries, are, uh, they put them conditions in order to get debts. Open up your economy. Let us come and plunder your resources and exploit your cheap labor. Let us create sacrifice zones in your own country so some corporations and some capitalists continue accumulating profits. And I think this is, this is, this is an important point. How do we translate knowledge into, into policies? First of all, we need to produce real critical knowledge because there are hierarchies of knowledge. Knowledge that comes from the global north, from international financial institutions, from Western University, has more value usually against some knowledge that comes from grassroots groups, social movements, radical uh, scholars. I think we need to have a critical forms of knowledge and then pressure and build power against the, the, the political elites. That's not easy. That's not easy, but it needs to be done for our own survival. Otherwise, we are going, we are going into, into death. And I think I'll stop here. <laughs> so you're a very good act to follow. I, I should have gone first. <laughs> but I agree with, with all of that. I maybe add two small, small reflections and then leave it there. Um, but yeah, I, th I think this question of is it, is it practical to, to save the world is a question we're asked a lot, and I think we do need to resist it in the terms that Anza suggested in the, in the context of our food sovereignty and agroecology work. We get asked a version of this, which is, you know, can sustainable agriculture feed the world? We say, well, the current system can't. So even if we're not 100% sure, we clearly have to try, because we're 100% sure the current system will not do it. Right? So people say, can, can anything other than capitalism work? And say, capitalism doesn't work. So the burden of proof actually is on you. Um, and I think that's yeah, a critical legitimate point um, and an important one to, to hold on to, right? That the current system is not working and calling for, for change to a, a broken system is actually the only reasonable alternative. Um, yeah, with that said, although I am very fond of you know one solution revolution as a as a slogan. Uh, it's not a, a political strategy, I would say. Um, I do think, yeah, what I have found, uh, or one kind of line of thinking that I have found useful on this is Eric Olin Wright's work on how to be anti-capitalist in the 21st century, and he lays out a quite a nice schema of how we can have multiple different kind of intersecting strategies. Uh, the work together towards, as uh, Sansa says, the ultimate, the long-term goal of getting ourselves beyond capitalism. But no, it, it won't happen tomorrow, right? 
Um, so he has the idea that we, we can combine these strategies of building interstitial solutions from the, from the grassroots, and we have, we, we see in the book many cases um, documented of that, of kind of small-scale building of, of local grassroots alternatives that provide people with both a, a kind of an alternative material basis, but also a vision of what energy democracy might look like. We see, you know, also the, the process of where it's possible, and it's not everywhere, but in some cases it is, uh, working within and through the state, trying to build, for example, more democratic forms of public ownership uh, and control of state utilities. Where there are partners in Indonesia who are working towards this, so building a democratic public ownership of electric utilities, which are then in a much better position to push for, for a green transition. And then at the same time, um, you know, we, we have documented the many modes of, of action, and Hamza has touched a bit on the questions of, of reparations, the kind of transformations of the global political economy, which are necessary to allow those local and national solutions to be, to be meaningful and to form part of a just transition. And there are, you know, different um, forms of action around the world that are being used to push for those, those kind of larger scale reforms. So we need to work with multiple different strategies at the same time, and we need to work at multiple different scales at the same time. So uh, there's plenty to do. So welcome to the struggle. <laughs> I know some of you had also had one of the last questions. What I'm looking at is we're five past the time we're supposed to finish. So what I suggest is our speakers are kind of going to stay around for another 25 minutes or so, half an hour, and you have an opportunity to come up and, and talk to them and look at the book and perhaps buy the book. And um, so I want to finish here uh, in terms of the formal event. Uh, before I finish, I, I need to announce uh, our last event at Middle East Center at the end of the term is next Thursday, 30th November, Voices That Matter, Kurdish Women at Limits of Representation in Contemporary Turkey by Marlena Schaefer. So you're welcome to come to that event. Go to the Lily Center website if you want to check it out and register. Um, I, um, very, very quickly, I know LSE uh, folk here, students particularly, you get exposed to a lot of ideas and arguments uh, at your time at LSE, and I'm really pleased we were able tonight to avoid the ideas and arguments that you heard. But I think they're very, very important. I think the book's very important. Uh, uh, not just in terms of regional analysis of the Arab region, but also why these wider questions about, about green colonialism and a just transition. So with that in mind, I want to thank you uh, thank very, very much, actually, initially, firstly, Nadine Amanaspi, our events coordinator at the Centre for Organising Next, for our, uh, our steward, and uh, for you as the audience for your, for your fantastic questions. Uh, but particularly, please join me in thanking Hamza and Katie for a fantastic